We continue this morning in our studies of Isaiah. Our verse to start us off with is actually going to come from the book of James. Because it fits in nicely with what Hezekiah does. So we'll turn to James chapter 5, verse 13 as a kind of lead-in verse. <clears throat> James 5.13 James asks, Is anyone among you suffering? And what does he say? Let him pray. So, we will look at that teaching this morning as we go through Isaiah chapter 38 and 39. That teaches us that when we're suffering, instead of saying, woe is me, we need to go to God in prayer. Okay, now, last last week we finished up chapter 37. Today we will be covering chapter 38 and 39. Remember, Isaiah is really composed of three parts. Uh, the first 36 chapters, uh, excuse me, first 35 chapters are basically prophecies of Isaiah. They aren't in any kind of chronological or theological order. And 36 through 39 is historical, basically centering on Hezekiah and Sennacherib's siege of Jerusalem. And then beginning in chapter 40 again, we pick up basically prophecy. So we're right in the middle right now. We're right in the historical section of Hezekiah. And remember Sennacherib has besieged excuse me yeah, has besieged Jerusalem for year for several years and he taunts the people, the leaders of Jerusalem, that your God is totally impotent before my God and you people need to surrender. Nobody has been able to resist our God whose name is Nishroth. Nobody's been able to resist him. Why do you think your God will be able to resist him? But we read in the last three verses of Isaiah 37, Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. They thought they were going to wake up one morning in Jerusalem and they wake up in hell. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained in, at Nineveh. That came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, that his sons Adremelech and Sherezer struck him down with the sword. And they escaped into the land of Ara. Rat and Escadron, Escadron, Escadon, his son, 
reigned in his place. Um, you know, this self-pronunciation Bible, to me, makes it harder to read these names than if that wasn't there. <laughs> but anyway, we see that at the end, it is uh, Sennacherib that uh, is killed in front of his totally impotent God. So, Yahweh has total victory over the God of Sennacherib. So this morning we pick up right after that, continuing in Hezekiah. It's not in chronological order. This is during the siege. This is before (coughs) Sennacherib evidently had been killed. So we will read there. And um, we are going to start. We left off with you last week, bud. So I'm going to have you read... I don't think there's any terrible names in there. The first eight verses of Isaiah 38. In those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall, and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add fifteen years to your life. I will deliver you in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. It shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do the things that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by him, declining sun on the dial of Ahaz, turn back ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial the ten steps by which it had declined. Now, this is an account that we will have to look into because it seems to deny something that we hold dear out of the first of the reading. Okay, during the time that Jerusalem was being threatened by Sennacherib, King Hezekiah becomes very ill. Isaiah informs him that it is terminal and that it will be quick. The verb stem used by um, uh, by Isaiah here is intensive. These verbs are in intensive, <clears throat> the pile form of the verb, <clears throat> which means it's bad. Isaiah's telling him it's bad. It's intense, it's going to be quick. You will not recover. Okay, it says, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. When it says, Set your house in order, it is intensive there. You better get it done very fast. And then in verse 2, Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall, prayed to the Lord. So in verses 2 to 3, we see that Hezekiah 
doesn't take this news very well. He goes to God in prayer. That's good. That's good. He goes to God in prayer. He was suffering. So he does what James tells people to do who suffers, although James wasn't written yet. He's suffering, so he prays. Um, the prayer is also intensive. So we, we have a very intense situation. He's going to die very soon, and he goes to God in fervent prayer. Alright, it is evident in this and the preceding chapters that he is a man of prayer. Remember how he went to God after Sennacherib told them they need to surrender and gave them about five good reasonable re- reasons um, why he should surrender. And he did it in writing. And so Hezekiah takes it and lays it on the table. And he says, look Lord, look what they've done to you. Look, what, look how he's blasphemed you. And he says, for your name's sake, O oh Lord, don't let him do this so that you will be distinct and all the nations of the earth will know that you are God when you defeat his God. And so he is a man of prayer. And he tells God here, he says, um, and beginning in verse 3, remember now, O oh Lord, I pray how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and I have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. <clears throat> Jesus says, if you ask me anything in my name, in my name, I will do it. It looks like Hezekiah is asking in his own name. What do y'all say about that? Look how good I am, Lord. I pray in the name of Hezekiah. <clears throat> All right. He's telling them he is. Were you getting ready to say something, Chase? Oh, go ahead. Uh, now you, you go ahead. Uh-huh, go ahead. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Being very polite today. <laughs> okay. Um, today. So he says he has. Live faithfully. He has walked faithfully. And that's also very intent in the intensive verb stem in the Hebrew. And he says, I've served you with all my heart. And he says he has practiced righteousness. So uh, is he claiming perfection there? Is he saying, look, God, you're, you're in debt to me. You owe me something. He is claiming perfection. I mean, there's other places in Scripture where, of course, all men sin. But they are, even in God's words, judged as righteous. Like David, a man after God's own heart. Yeah. That, that, if, if anybody's going to sound like they're being perfect, it'd be somebody after God's own heart. <laughs> yeah. Now, I think he's praying in the Spirit here. Look, Lord. You have a covenant with us, and I have been covenantally faithful to you. I've been loyal to you, O Lord. <clears throat> when as the king, and realizing that they had wicked kings, he sees himself as a good king over the people, and he's good for the nation. Yeah. God's people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good, yes. You're, you're, you're hitting on a point here that I'm going to bring up. 
Uh, yes, he's uh, very valuable, really, to the nation right now. Uh, he's probably about 38 years old when he makes this prayer. And we see that he weeps bitterly. And in your notes, knowing that there is no heir, H-E-I-R, no heir to the throne at this time. Somebody like um, Steve, look up for Second Chronicles 33.1. So the nation really does need Hezekiah. He's, he's a good king. And there's no heir to the throne. And I'll show you how we figured that out. Second Chronicles 33.1, yeah. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. All right, I think the verse before that says that Hezekiah died. Yes. Slept with his father. Okay. So, 15 years later when Hezekiah did die, because God said he was going to add 15 years to his life. <clears throat> he had a 12-year-old son. So at the time that Isaiah 38 took place, there was no heir. The royal Davidic line would have been interrupted. So it's not necessarily all um, selfishness. Probably really no selfishness. But... There are other things, other reasons besides him just plain dying uh, that he prays to God to let him live. Okay, I'm going to read Derek Thomas, what he has to say about this situation. He says here that of some importance is the fact that Hezekiah had no heir. Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, was born some three years after this incident, being only 12 years old when he came to the throne. Had Hezekiah died at this point, there would have been a fatal interruption in the promise line of the Messiah's birth. And seen from this point of view, Hezekiah's concern for his life is not simply a selfish one, but we must also take note of the fact that he was a relatively young man in his mid-30s, this prayer was what any believer might request in such circumstances. So it really shook Hezekiah up. Hezekiah goes to the Lord in prayer. For his good and for the nation's good. So why would God have told Isaiah that Hezekiah was going to die when God knows that that would have messed up the lineage? We're coming to that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wait a minute. I didn't get the last part of that question. Repeat that question. You added something right there at the end that I hadn't... God knew that it would break the lineage if Hezekiah died because he didn't have an heir. Yeah. Yeah, okay. All right. Let's, let's go on in the notes. We'll, we'll get that covered. All right, the Lord hears his prayer and the Lord tells him three wonderful things. Uh, so we see that God, go and tell Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears, and surely I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. So that's one good thing. 
and I will defend the city, and this is a sign to you from the Lord. The Lord will do this thing which He has spoken. And then He says He's going to make that dial go back 10 degrees. So, He's going to add 15 years to His life. He's going to deliver Jerusalem from the Assyrian threat. And He's going to give Him a confirming sign. That's a pretty good answer to prayer, isn't it? God can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Well, even Jesus, now Jesus was perfection. Hmm. But even Jesus in, in Gethsemane said, if there's any other way for this cup to be taken away from me, I pray for that, but not my will, your will. So he didn't want to die. No. No, he didn't want to go to the cross. Um, but he, he didn't want to un- undergo that. He didn't want to undergo the wrath of God for all the sins that the elect, uh, for all the suffering the elect of God uh, deserve. He took that on. And that's one of the classic passages used to show that the cross was necessary. There's no other way. No other way except for the cross. I guess it, what I'm saying is it's not surprising that a man would say, I don't want to die. Yeah. Any man. Yeah, Joshua. Uh, I think that we need to relook at that. Um, throughout all of Christ's ministry, he kept telling everybody who was close to him, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, I'm going to the cross. It was all the people around him telling him, no, may it not be. <clears throat> Even Peter, Christ says, get behind me, sing. He did it because he loved the church. That was why he, in essence, said, I'm going to save my, my bride. Even before time began. That passage has a lot of nuance to it. it I, I would say that whenever he's say, talking about the cup, he's, he's talking about his fear and terror at the prospect, not the mission itself. But remember, in that scene, he's sweating tears of blood, or uh, drops of blood. He is so overwhelmed with stress and so overwhelmed with fear as a man who is about to drink this cup every last drop that he wants to make sure that he can do it successfully as the Father wants him to do it. And so he's asking to take the fear away. Not that there's any other way to save the church. There was no other way to save the church. And Christ knew that. Okay. So, that, I think that needs to be said. Well, it's far from a perfect analogy, but what man would not pray? his life wouldn't be taken in as I think your words in the lesson are in the prime of life. Yeah, that's a normal human reaction. Mm-hmm. And most of the time we're not appealing to our faithfulness and our loyalty when we do that, which Hezekiah is. And I think that shows that we sometimes confuse self-abasement with humility. And that's just not the case. It's just complete dependence upon God and Hezekiah made his desires known to God um, not knowing what the answer was going to be at the end but um, that's humility 
said, when you're suffering, practice, that's humility. And that's loyalty to God. Somebody else have their hand up? Okay, good points. Good points there. All right. So, after telling these three wonderful things, he tells them that he's going to die, and he's going to die soon, and he's not going to recover. And then he comes back after Hezekiah prays and says, look, I'm lengthening your life by 15 years. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 3 makes this statement. This is in your notes. God from all eternity did, by His most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Let's look up these passages beginning over here with Darlene. Ephesians 1.11. Lane, uh, Romans 11.33, Kim, Hebrews 6.17, and Joshua, Romans 9.15. Just whenever you find it, go ahead and read it. Predestined by him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Romans eleven thirty-three. Oh the deepness of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. All right, the divines use that as a proof text, although it doesn't seem to fit exactly right. Okay. Uh, Hebrews six seventeen. Council. And then Romans 9 15. For he saith unto Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Alright, the context on that is God does have an eternal decree. I was just pulling these proof texts from the Westminster Divines. I think there are better proof texts than those. But we know that God does have an eternal decree. And he tells Hezekiah, you're going to die. You're going to die soon. And then it seems like he changes his mind and says, eh, I'm going to give you 15 more years because that's what you asked. And I kind of like you. All right, the same kind of thing happens in Jonah chapter 3 where Jonah says, goes through Nineveh and says, yet 40 days and this place will be overthrown or destroyed. And... Then the people repented and God did not destroy the place and it really hacked Jonah off. Okay. So, does this show that God does not have an eternal decree? Maybe He can change it here and there? We've got a few hands on that. We'll just go down the road. Alright. Of course, part of the answer will come from another part of the confession that in the 
question answers you know, to it is uh, how does God execute his decrees? Well, through creation and providence. And of course, a further step into that is his decree is part of the uh, primary causes. But we live, he's created a world, we live in it of secondary cause, causes. So there's cause and effect. There's real cause and effect here. And he knows that speaking forth the word, which is still, you know, we have to make our decisions and we are enabled by the Holy Spirit to do that. So he knows that the warning has to be given. He knows that he has to do that, that part of his decree to make the chain of events happen. So whether it was with the people of Nineveh, the king of the people, or with Hezekiah, he spoke that word to get them to respond so that he could bring his decree forth. Okay. Joshua. It also demonstrates that God normally works through means. And that through those means, had the Ninevites not done anything and scoffed at Jonah, they would have been destroyed. But it was through the means of preaching they were moved to repentance, which relents God's anger. Hence, he was not going to destroy them, at least for a time. Same with Hezekiah. The fact that he was moved to pray by the preaching of Isaiah, his life was extended. Anybody else? I'm just thinking about that scripture. I don't know if this really is appropriate for this conversation, but there's, um, I wish I could tell you, <coughs> where he says, if Tyre and Sidon had heard what I'm telling you today, they would have repented. They would have repented. Yeah. So he, God knows <clears throat> how things would have been different had people responded differently, but does that necessarily mean that it was his decree? that they didn't respond differently. <laughs> now, Obviously it was. The way I see this, this is a very practical lesson. You ever been asked, if God has an eternal decree, why in the world do you pray? I'm sure we've probably all been asked that. Why pray if everything is already predestined? Well, we see, from what I can tell, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but... Prayer can change God's mind, but it will not change His decree. He says, Hezekiah, you're going to die. <clears throat> Hezekiah prays to the Lord, and he says, Hezekiah, you're going to live. This eternal decree all along is that Hezekiah would live. Um, everybody dies the very moment they're planning on doing it. And the same with Nineveh. With Nineveh, the God's eternal decree was not to destroy Nineveh at the time Jonah preached to him. But he uses the prayers of his saints um, to for the secondary causes, as a couple of you people have said. It does change God's mind, speaking from the human standpoint, as we see here, but it does not change his eternal decree. God is self-contained. God is impassable. Um, and he is not going to change his decree for anybody. 
So very instructive for us Calvinists if we're ever put to the test on why pray. Because God uses secondary means to get His will done. Okay. As I mentioned before, I was raised in Arminianism and now I have family members, immediate family members, siblings, who are still in that. And they have challenged me. Well, if God has predestined and elected, who's going to make it to heaven? Why do we bother preaching? Those people are going to make it because God decreed they're going to make it. He's chosen them. They're his elect. So why does anybody bother preaching? Why does anybody bother going to church? Why do we bother trying to live a life that's exemplary and, and magnifies Christ? Why do we do that if it's already decided? They do come at you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> come at me. The simple reason is because we are commanded. That's right. awesome. And our prayers are decreed too. Yeah. Yeah. And not only did it impact mm-hmm. that time and that place, but it's in Scripture. And it's impacted all the time and places since then as we learn lessons from it. Yeah. <clears throat> I'll use that next time. Yeah. Two huge problems with the church in this culture is, number one, it's scripturally illiterate. Not every church, but as a rule of thumb. And second is, you don't pray. And how can you know God's will? You're supposed to pray His will if you don't know the Bible. How can you keep Jesus' Jesus's commandments if you don't know the commandments? Um, most Christians can't name the Ten Commandments. Jesus says, if you love me, you're going to keep those commandments. So it's a Christian's obligation to know what Jesus' commandments are. And we are commanded to pray in the Spirit. So we are obligated. We pray because we've been commanded to. We evangelize because we've been commanded to. Plus, we have the promise of God that all the nations are going to be baptized. We have incentive. We're on the winning team. Steve? Well, you know, in talking about our responses and some of these Armenians and what they say, well, why bother? Well, it's interesting to even historically speaking that this truth probably did more to motivate reformers and, and descendants of us to evangelism than the Armenians because knowing that it's not on us, it frees us to just put the word out there and trust God to bring forth whatever is going to come of that word. And it just it motivated people. I was motivated when I first came into this, this understanding. So, you know, it really goes against what these naysayers talk about because it really is a positive motivation to action. Um, Josh? It also goes against uh, the modern reform notion of we need to be winsome to the world. Mm, yeah. Um, we need <laughs> yeah. to, to draw them in with love. That's a bunch of hogwash. When Jonah went to Nineveh, he said, God is going to destroy you in 40 days. When Isaiah went to Hezekiah, your days are over, you're going to die. So, I think that one of the implications of our text here, and of uh, providence and God's decree, is that faithfulness to the message means faithfulness to the message. 
and knowing that God's spirit works, God's working out the things that he's working out. It's a mystery to us. We are but instruments in his hands. But we need to trust in that and be faithful, ultimately, as faithful as we possibly can to preach, to teach, and to proclaim the gospel. That's beautifully carried out in Acts 2 also. <coughs> when Paul was preaching, excuse me, when Peter was preaching, he scared them to death. What must we do? And he says, repent, repent, be baptized, every one of you. And he was really harsh. They knew they were about to be destroyed if they weren't, if they didn't. Yeah. He was really harsh with them too. He's like, this Jesus whom you crucified. God has made him Lord and Christ. Put it on them. Yeah. <clears throat> we need to faithfully preach the message. And in the times of great revivals, Basically, I'm not sure this is 100%, but basically then when Calvinism <coughs> has been proclaimed, um, God has an eternal decree. You people are in danger. God's wrath is coming upon you. You need to repent and turn to Jesus. That's when the great revival... I mean, Jonathan Edwards, he wasn't no softy. And uh, other great preachers weren't either. All right, good discussion. Anything else before we move on? Okay, um, so God does have an eternal decree. He was not surprised by Hezekiah's prayer and changed his mind. God's never surprised by anything. Okay, verse chapter 9. Uh, 38, rather, verses 9 through 22. And maybe we better not start on that today. Um, I'm just going to tell you this. You can read that. I'll read the beginning of it. This is the writing, verse 9, of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. He said, In the prime of my life I shall go to the gates of Sheol. I am deprived of the remainder of my years. Etc. Hezekiah composes this after he recovers. He acknowledges that God alone has a power of life and death, according to a note in the ESV study Bible. This writing consists of a lament in verses 10 through 16. That's your notes. Verses 10 16 is basically a lament. And then verses 17 through 20 is basically thanksgiving. Okay. I'm going to read the thanksgiving part, and then I'm going to go all the way down to verse 22, from 17 to 22, because something very important happens here. Indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness, but you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol cannot thank you, death cannot praise you, those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your truth. The living, the living man, he shall praise you as I do this day. The Father shall make known your truth to the children. The Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, we will sing my songs with stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. So we see his lament and his thanksgiving. So... <clears throat> Isaiah shows after that that Hezekiah's 
And then after after his prayer is answered, he praises God and he thanks God. In the last verse of his writing, verse 20, he reaffirms his faith in God. In verse 20, he reaffirms his faith in God. But look at what happens here. He then says, Now Isaiah had said, Let them take a lump of figs and apply it as potice on the bowl, and he shall recover. And Hezekiah had said, What is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? Here we have God making a promise. And then Isaiah asks for a sign. What is the sign that I will do this? So in your notes... It said, Isaiah tells them to use proper medicine to cure Hezekiah. So we're to have faith plus use medicine. We follow that example. Then we see in verse 22 a bad sign. His faith may be wavering. It seems God's promise is not good for him anymore. He asks for a confirming sign. Your bare word is not good enough anymore, God. I want a sign. So here we have a man that has been greatly faithful to God, has great faith in what God says. And then all of a sudden he seems to be wavering. And then next week we'll see in verse 39, it virtually goes to pop. So he doesn't do so good at the end of chapter 38 and in chapter 39. But Hezekiah had done very well up to then. But then it seems like he may possibly be losing some of his godliness. Alright, any any other observations on Isaiah 38? Okay, if not, um, Chase, I'll ask you to close us in prayer today, please. Our Father, we thank you for